So I'll explain why I asked that question um, in just a moment. But, but let me recap for those that are joining us for the first time this morning. Again, maybe you're on holiday or, or maybe it's your first time in church or at Mutley. And can I just say, if you have any questions in the realms of what was that guy on about? This is weird. I don't get it. I've experienced something maybe even this morning. It doesn't make sense to me. Please come and chat afterwards. I love those kind of questions. Questions are good. There's not a fear of questions in the church. If you want to ask questions, please come and ask them and we can talk about some of these things. But we're continuing um, our journey on uh, spiritual formation, um, looking at some of the Old Testament patriarchs and seeing what we had to learn um, from their walk and what God has done in and through them. And today we're looking at Moses with this title of Dependence and Deliverance. And the reason I asked you that question at the start is how you feel about the word dependence is correct me if I'm, well, you can't really correct me if I'm wrong, I suppose it's a monologue, <laughs> that doesn't work. Um, but there's something within society that, that, that actually we're quite scared of the word dependence, we don't really like it, because we're called to be independent, right? Strong, independent man or a strong, independent woman, I don't need nobody else. You know, I do this on my own. I don't know why I do an American accent, but it seems to fit naturally with that kind of, of theme. <laughs> I think it was American, maybe Irish, I'm not sure. It was an accent of some kind. Utterly dependent on, on others isn't something we particularly like. Because dependence, it seems, equates weakness, right? Vulnerability. When you rely on someone else, you're admitting that you might not have the ability to accomplish it yourself. And I don't think we're particularly comfortable with that idea. I don't want to be dependent. I want to do things myself. I want to accomplish things myself. I don't want the help of anyone else. But yet, when we come to the Bible, we see all throughout Scripture that God is calling us to be utterly dependent on him. And in fact, it's because of our weaknesses, not despite them, that his power is made perfect and made most beautiful, right? It's in those moments in which we actually cannot accomplish it. We do not have the ability. We are completely vulnerable and at a wit's end that we can trust in God, be dependent on him and know that he will deliver us in those moments. Would you acknowledge that? 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9 to 10, in the message, uh, Paul has this revelation from God and he says this, Then he told me, my grace is enough, it's all you need. My strength comes to its own in your weakness. Once I heard that, I was glad to let it happen. I quit focusing on the handicap and began appreciating the gift. It was a case of Christ's strength moving in on my weakness. Now I take limitations in stride. And with good cheer, these limitations that cut cut me down to size, abuse, accidents, opposition, bad breaks... I just let Christ take over, and so the weaker I get, the stronger I become. Paul is saying is in those moments he is dependent on God in his weakness and vulnerability, and in fact, that's where he finds his strength, because suddenly his ego and his pride that says, no, you can do this on your own, has to subside to the almighty and beautiful power of the God that we love and worship. And in fact, it is not despite, but because of those weaknesses that God makes him strong and God shows his power through him. So I've got two questions I want you to reflect on this morning. Are you dependent on God and do you trust him to deliver you? Are you dependent on God and do you trust him to deliver you? So we're going to look at this um, story of Moses. People seen The Prince of Egypt, that brilliant cartoon. No one's seen The Prince of Egypt. Oh, come on, Mutley Baptist Church. That's like, that's like Christian 101. Watch that movie. I've seen a few that have seen it. It's brilliant, the songs in that movie. But I feel often when we come to stories like Moses and, and, and the Exodus, 
our understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, of the story more relate back to when we were kids, maybe than as adults. We know the truths because we've been told them as kids, but whether we've connected with them on a deep level as adults, I'm not sure. And actually, the important thing with this particular story of the Exodus is it is a prime narrative to our whole faith. It isn't one of the sub-stories that we, we include in the Bible and our whole Christian worldview. It is a primal narrative of the Christian faith. That's why we see so many parallels in Jesus and everything he did. For Jewish people, this is their Jesus, if you like, in the sense that God saved his people from slavery. This is the story they go to. But then because we believe in Jesus and everything he's done, we also inherit all of that story and claim it for our own. So this is, is a story of our ancestors, the story of our heritage. It's part of the great narrative that we tell as Christians about the Jesus that we love and worship. It is a prime story that God saves his people from slavery. Like Jesus slaves us from the slavery and bondage of sin, Moses was used by God to slave the people, save the people from slavery to the Egyptians. But I'm aware that many of you might not necessarily know the story, or, and I'm saying this regardless of age, may have forgotten some of the details. I think that's potentially a fair assumption. So I want to remind and go over the story a little bit for those that that don't. So the story goes a little bit like this. The Israelites are in slavery to the Egyptian people, the great superpower of the time. Um, Their slavery is difficult. It's tough. Um, As you can imagine, it would be used in, in horrific conditions to do horrific things. And around this time, Pharaoh releases an edict that all the newborn babies of the Israelite people are to be thrown in the Nile and drowned. Can you imagine if that kind of ruling was, was placed today? There would be absolute outrage everywhere. And yet one of the slave women, a mother, has a child called Moses. And in order to save him, puts him in a wicker basket, puts him on the Nile, and he ends up within the reeds. As God's great providence would have it, Pharaoh's daughter and her maids are there washing and find this small baby. And not wanting to kill the baby like her dad had ordered her to, She takes him into her her care, and suddenly this small child goes overnight from being a slave to being a prince of Egypt. There is no faster way to be tracked up the the scale of of quality, right, or whatever you'd call it, from a slave to a prince um, in a night. And around this time, the Israelite people were fed up of their slavery. And imagine um, we would be right in that situation, call out to God, cry out to him, and not the kind of polite way that we so often do it um, in England. God, I'm a little bit frustrated, but I know you're great, and that's okay. The angry, sad, broken prayers that say, why are you doing this to me? You are our God, and yet here we are in slavery. Nothing is going right. Where are you? Those kind of prayers, those kind of calling out to God, and the God that we worship doesn't sit in quiet, putting his fingers over his ears, but here's their call, right? Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 to 8, it says this. From verse 5, sorry, it says, Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, this is God talking to Moses, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, I will bring you up, out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with the mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. How amazing is that? The God that we worship heard their cry and promised that he would free them from their time of slavery. And he did this by using Moses, the man who made from a slave to a a prince of Egypt, But, unfortunately, Moses wasn't the best 
with the old words and communication and realizing the role that was quite important for Moses. He got Aaron to come and help. Not Aaron Beecher, who's sitting over there. I don't think you're quite that old yet, mate. Um, But Aaron, um, from back in those days, he went and helped Moses uh, be his voice box as he went to the king of Egypt to petition for the freedom of, of the Israelites. He stands before, you can imagine, it's his his adopted father, if you like. He's standing there with Aaron asking, let my people go. The Lord says, let them go or you will face the consequences. He petitions on numerous occasions. The Pharaoh is like a, a fickle millennial. He's back and forth within his views of where he stands. And he says, one moment you're free, one moment, no, 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 I'm still enslaving you. This is not happening. Back and forth. And constantly they face um, the judgment of God in various ways. Ten um, particular plagues are put upon them. Now, I'd be very impressed if you can remember all 10. I will be honest with you, I can't, but that's why Google is amazing. And we have uh, some of the plagues that he delivers. The first was, 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 the, was the blood. The whole river Nile turned into blood. And again, all of these plagues impacted only the Egyptians, but in fact, God saved the Israelites from the pain and suffering they experienced. The next was the frogs. I don't know how you feel about frogs. Maybe you're French and love a good frog's legs. I think even then, there's too many potentially to cook for that delicacy. Uh, the next one is gnats, lice, and mosquitoes. Can you think of a more miserable creature that you wonder why God even made um, in the first place? Thousands of them. Flies everywhere was the next plague. The fifth one, uh, sadly, was, was, was livestock. Many animals, cattle, and sheep um, were killed. So not only are they suffering from the infuriation of the mosquitoes and over all these other um, insects and, and plagues, but now they're also struggling for food. This one will show very briefly. Oh, that was a bit too brief, Angapa. I want them to enjoy that for a moment more. Uh, the next one was boils. Now, I don't feel sorry for you at all because I had to research boils and had to see hundreds of these images in order to get one that was appropriate. So enjoy if we could move on because that is rank. Uh, the next one was, was the uh, plague of hails. Not much like the hailstorms we have here in the UK, but, but big hailstones that have really caused damage and injured and harmed people. The next one was the, um, the, the plague of locusts everywhere. And this one was particularly poignant, eating not only uh, eating the food, eating all their wheat and corn. What do they have now to eat? Their livestock have been killed. They've suffered the boils and many other things, and now they have no wheat or, or, or food um, to eat. The, the ninth plague was a plague of darkness over the morning um, and the evening, utter darkness. Imagine not being able to see anything, no, no lights on or of, of any kind. The suffering of the Egyptian people at this point is immense, and yet Pharaoh is still not relenting, he's still not letting his people go. And finally is, is the most painful, um, the one in which uh, the firstborn of all the Egyptian families is killed, um, and, and they lose their cattle. This one that the Israelites could escape if they were to take a blemish-free lamb and use the blood of that that lamb upon their doorposts, they would pass this particular suffering and not feel the weight of it. So all of these plagues came upon the Egyptian people. Every single time, Pharaoh grew in his stubbornness and, and, and relented. Every time he freed them, he said, no, I'm not doing that anymore. You're back in slavery. But eventually, after this final plague, he allows the, Egyptian, the, the, the Israelite people freedom. Not until he changes his mind, as he's been doing throughout this whole narrative, and chases them down. And this is where we join the story. Exodus chapter 14, if you've got your Bibles with you. And I am reading from the message translation, so I say that because it will probably look nothing like what you've got 
in your hands. Same Bible for those that um, are here for the first time and, and, and don't know the difference. Just a different uh, way of capturing the story. And I'm going to read from verse 5 as well. It says, When the king of Egypt was told that the people were gone, he and his servants changed their minds. They said, What have we done? Letting Israel, our slave labor, go free. So he had his chariots harnessed and got his army together. He took 600 of his best chariots with the rest of the Egyptian chariots and their drivers coming along. God made Pharaoh, king of Egypt, stubborn, determined to chase the Israelites as they walked out on him without even looking back. The Egyptians gave chase and caught up with them where they had made camp by the sea. All Pharaoh's horse-drawn chariots and their riders, all his foot soldiers near at Pi-Hafaroth, opposite Baal-Zephram. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and saw them, Egyptians, coming at them. They were totally afraid. They cried out in terror to God. They told Moses, weren't the cemeteries large enough in Egypt so that you had to take us out here in the wilderness to die? What have you done to us, taking us out of Egypt? Back in Egypt, didn't we tell you this would happen? Didn't we tell you, leave us alone here in Egypt? We're better off as slaves in Egypt than as corpses in the wilderness. Moses spoke to the people. Don't be afraid. Stand firm and watch God do his work of salvation for you today. Take a good look at the Egyptians today, for you're never going to see them again. God will fight your, your battle, and you keep your mouths shut as only the message translation could put it. God said to Moses, Why cry out to me? Speak to the Israelites. Order them to get moving. Hold your staff high and stretch your hand out over the sea. Split the sea. The Israelites will walk through the sea on dry ground. Meanwhile, I'll make sure the Egyptians keep up their stubborn chase. I'll use Pharaoh and his entire army, his chariots and horsemen, to put my glory on display so that the Egyptians will realize that I am God. The angel of God had been leading the camp of Israel now, and now shifted and got behind them. And the pillar of the cloud that had been in front also shifted to the rear. The cloud was now between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. The cloud enshrouded one camp in darkness and flooded the other with light. The two camps didn't come near each other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and God, with a terrific east wind all night long, made the sea go back. He made the sea dry ground. The sea waters split. The Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground with the waters a wall to the right and to the left. The Egyptians came after them in full pursuit, every horse and chariot and driver of Pharaoh racing into the middle of the sea. It was now the morning watch. God looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud on the Egyptian army and threw them into a panic. He clogged the wheels of their chariots. They were stuck in the mud. The Egyptians said, run from Israel. God is fighting on their side and against Egypt. God said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea and the waters will come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots, over their horsemen. Moses stretched his hand out over the sea, 
As the day broke and the Egyptians were running, the sea returned to its place as before. God dumped the Egyptians in the middle of the sea. The waters returned, drowning the chariots and riders of Pharaoh's army that had chased after Israel into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites walked right through the middle of the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall to the right and to the left. God delivered Israel that day from the oppression of the Egyptians. And Israel looked at the Egyptian dead, washed up on the shore of the sea, and realized the tremendous power that God brought against the Egyptians. The people were in reverent awe before God and trusted in God and his servant, Moses. I personally like the way the um, message captures that story. It seems to put you in the middle of the narrative in which you can kind of visualize maybe more of what's going on. But I want to do that this morning because, it's, again, it's easy to hear that. Uh, maybe switch off because you know the story. It's very hot at the moment as well, so if you are affording a quick nap during the story, I would understand. But um, I want to put you in the story. So I want you to imagine you're Moses. I want you to imagine you're in the situation that he found himself in. I want you to focus in front of you. In front of you, all you can see is sea, as, as far as your eyes can see. The impossible situation. There is no way forward. You've thought through all the possible scenarios. Could we build boats? Do we have time? The Lord is protecting us in the shadow. Could we build boats? Could we get them on? Could we move them across? Of course we haven't got time. We definitely can't do that. What about if we've got people to swim? It, it, it seems manageable. We could have the stronger ones pull the weaker ones. The elderly people could be maybe put on wood. Is it possible that we could get away? Oh, it's, not, it's not possible. There's no way we can get across this. Imagine what he must have been thinking as he looked upon the, the vastness of the sea and the impossibility of the situation. Now I want you to focus on the people behind him. His people. They look tired, they look scared. Mothers clinging their children, trying to bring some semblance of comfort in their moment of wailing and, and, and fear. Fathers uh, angrily shouting, trying to order people about and, and show that they know what they're talking about. Trying to petition Moses to go back to Pharaoh. Why did you do this in the first place? Why did you bring us here? You knew this situation would happen. We warned you. They've been through years of slavery They've lifted everything from their home, as horrible as it was in Egypt, and brought them to this place in which they're about to die. Imagine how his people must be feeling and what Moses must be feeling for his people, who he's responsible for in this moment. And then want you to f- focus further back um, in the distance. You're not able to see much at this moment, but you can certainly feel the ground begin to shudder. You can see the odd glint from the sunlight catching on the shields, on the spears, on the swords. And you can hear the cries of the Egyptians as they're racing towards the Israelites. You're not able to make out much because their chariots have blown up a cloud of dust covering everywhere, full of fear. And now I want you to focus in on yourself as Moses. How do you feel in this particular moment? Tired? Scared? You've got an impossible situation in front of you. You've got an impossible situation behind you. There's no way out. You've got people wailing and calling for you to make a decision. You have to decide in something. You're torn completely in your decision. You can go back to Pharaoh and potentially petition for his mercy. Maybe, just maybe, he'll take you back without killing all of you. Or in fact, you can continue to depend on God. He's delivered you this far. Maybe he'll deliver you to the next stage. 
Exodus 14, verse 13, Moses makes up his mind with confidence. He turns to his fearful people and he says, don't be afraid, stand firm and watch God do his work of salvation for you today. Take a good look at the Egyptians today for you are never going to see them again. Moses depended on God in his moment of impossibility and God delivered him. Are you dependent on God? Do you trust him to deliver you? Are you dependent on God? Do you trust him to deliver you? This week, um, I was doing one of the uh, devotions on, on the Bible app, the YouVersion Bible app, if, if you've got it. And there's a devotion there called Naturally Supernatural. I'd really encourage you to look at it. Um, if you have this app, if you don't, download it for free. Um, a great resource and, and way of spending time with God. Other than the fact it always, it's got these streaks that remind you of the times when you haven't actually picked up the app to use it, which I always think is really annoying because it's a reminder of your failure when you got on the app. <laughs> you missed a day. Thanks, phone. <laughs> but um, this particular devotion is called Everyday Supernatural by Mike Pilavachi. People know him. He, he was the one who started the whole um, Soul Survivor movement um, with Andy Croft as well, uh, big throughout, throughout London and, and Watford. Um, and one of the devotions really struck me when I was reading it the other week, particularly poignant for some of the topic that we're looking at this morning. So if you will indulge me, I want to read this to you. He says, The supernatural life isn't one where we wander around with pumped-up confidence, throwing power bombs at people. If it were, only a few people could ever live it. Instead, it is a life available to anyone. All we need to do is depend on God, trusting that his power can work in our vulnerability. He goes on to tell a story about his friend, Ants Watts. He says, our friend, Ants Watts, tells a story about his little girl, Hannah, that illustrates how this works. Ants came home one evening, and Hannah came running up to him, saying, Daddy, Daddy, can we build a fire? Ants agreed. And so they gathered all the bits of wood and paper they needed and arranged them in the fireplace. Once they lit it, Hannah knew they needed to blow on the fire to help it catch. She knelt down, put her face near the fire and began to blow. The sound was like someone blowing a raspberry. Ants said as so much dribble came out of her mouth, he was sure more water went on the fire than oxygen. But after a few minutes, the fire suddenly caught and and began to spread. Hannah turned, beaming to her dad, and said, I did it, Daddy. I did it. Well done, he responded. You did it. Clever girl. What Hannah didn't see was that while she was kneeling down, blowing a wet raspberry at the fire, her daddy was crouching next to her. Every time she blew, Ants was taking a deep breath and blowing on the fire from behind her. She turned in delight at what she'd accomplished, not knowing that her daddy had been helping her all along. And Mike says in response to this story, we love what the father-daughter moment illustrates about how the everyday supernatural life works. Even the strongest amongst us will only ever achieve the equivalent of a wet raspberry. But our father is behind us. As we step out, he breathes out the wind of his Holy Spirit and fires begin to catch. Weakness is the way. This means no lack of qualifications, no lack of gifting, no lack of fashion sense can ever get get in the way of God working through us. It means that you are in. God doesn't work in spite of our weakness, but he works 
because of it. That in fact, every effort of our own is nothing but, as Mike was saying, a wet raspberry. But we can trust when we are dependent on God that he will deliver us and use us in ways that we couldn't possibly imagine. That's how fires get started. And that's how we walk through the water. Because without him, none of those things can be accomplished. Amen? And I want to be honest um, this morning with you as I've been reflecting on this message and this theme. I've been thinking about us as a church family. I've been thinking about the journey that we've got ahead, the unsurety of everything that's happening, thinking of Clive leaving um, in September. You do still have a, a minister here, by the way, so it's not a normal, regular uh, interregnum, but it will leave a massive gap in, in what we do as a church, thinking about the pain that we've been through as a church family with the journey and the conversations we've been having, the pain we've felt amongst loved ones that we've known for, for many years. And I've had to witness some of that division in a family that I love, and it has been painful. We can all stand witness to that. But I stand here with confidence this morning, dependent on a God who can deliver us. And I do not know what the future holds, but I know that I have a God who is faithful. I know that in this time of unsurety, we do not trust in a God who is unwilling to help or cannot bring us free, but we trust in a God who parts waters. We trust in a God who starts fires. So as weak, as vulnerable, and as utterly helpless as a church family as we feel in this moment, we know we worship a God who is greater. Amen? And if we can do anything over the coming months, it is be on our knees in prayer, utterly dependent on him. And maybe for you this morning, maybe that's a story that relates to you. Maybe there's a deep cry of your heart, and you're frustrated, you're hurting, you're, you're standing before an impossible situation. I hope this morning you've been encouraged by this message, because I certainly was. And I hope that as a church and as individuals, as we go this week into whatever it is we may face, whatever field of work we go into, whether it's with family or friends, that we will be utterly dependent on him. Because I, I want to see fires start. I mean, completely supernatural, God-blown fires. <laughs> Don't mishear me. But to see God transform and change this city, to see this, grow, this church grow and be thriving, and not because we are the most capable church in Plymouth, but because we're on our knees dependent on God. Let's pray to him. Father, we thank you uh, for this challenge and encouragement. And my prayer is simple. This coming week, individually and as a church family, may we be utterly dependent on you. And may we look back in months' time and see how you have delivered us how you have brought us through a dark valley and how we can stand and proclaim that you are greater, you are faithful and you are our Father and the Lord of this church. In your name, for your glory. Amen.